Hi, I'm Claire Bowman, Senior Editor at Host Publications, and welcome to the Host Dispatch, a literary podcast where we discuss life, literature, and all things creative. So far, 2020 has been a year of turmoil and upheaval, as the foundations we've built our society upon have begun to crumble beneath the weight of a global pandemic and the racial injustices that have too long been festering have come to the surface. The wheels of change are turning, and in the midst of protests and radical uprising, these times feel something like the plot of a science fiction narrative. As Anar says in this episode, we are living in the future, and it's a dystopia. In this episode, we discuss the science fiction genre through the lens of our current moment, and delve into the work of a couple of sci-fi authors who, as women of color, are voices that we feel it is important to elevate. Managing editor Anar Varold tells us about Yoko Ogawa's mystifying novel, The Memory Police, and I tell a fraction of the story of my personal sci-fi hero, the great Octavia Butler. We share the work of these great writers in the spirit of hope for a better future. Thanks for listening. It's the first time in a long time that we've seen each other. It's a special day. Definitely keeping you about six feet away. But we've both been very careful and very safe and it's good to come together. Yeah, it's nice to be in the quote studio. (laughs) The studio is a very small room filled with archived sheets of music. I think we have like 10,000 pieces in this room, which makes it the most soundproof place. Maybe on the block. Uh, Yeah, we are surrounded by boxes and boxes full of sheet music. That's a pretty unique recording studio setup, I think. It's even more special uh, if you actually know me and know that I have touched every single piece um, and organized every single piece for the past five years. So Dang, Mm -hmm. five years? Mm -hmm. That's crazy. I didn't Uh, know it was that long. Yeah. Well, congratulations (laughs) on finishing that project. Thank you. I was here for some of it, and I know that it was very labor intensive. Yeah. And also really fun. These are beautiful, and some of them are very ancient pieces of sheet music in all different languages. This has been a plug for Adam's Music House in Austin, Texas. (laughs) Um, I'm sure Joe will be happy. Yeah. Catch our (laughs) Zoom recitals on Wednesdays. Getting out into the world again, I do feel a physical sensation that is, I think, very healthy and positive. Just being a body out in the world again, feeling a little less trapped inside my own mind. Yeah. So for folks that aren't in Austin, we can put into context that technically there's still a shelter in place. Um, Folks should still be at a distance from one another, but the state has kind of overrided some of those local ordinances and requests. Uh, So the city is open and a few weeks into the city opening, there has been a more vocal demand for justice, in part with the Black Lives Matter movement. But here in Austin, there was the death of Mike Ramos, uh, which has been fueling on a local level a lot of demands. And yeah, there's been a lot going on. We are not quite seeing leadership at a local, regional, state, yeah, national level. 
I think what we've seen with the protests is that there are certainly situations in which it is worth the risk for some of disobeying that. Yeah. And um, I think it goes without saying that host publications is totally with the protesters, people that are putting themselves at risk by gathering in mass to fight the powers that be. Yeah. There's no easy solution. There's no easy answer, or even an easy way to look at what's happening. The complication of our of our situation just in Austin, and obviously this goes for other cities as well, has compounded significantly. Instead of getting solved in some systematic way, um, turns out the systems are corrupt and they are being dismantled. Yeah. So that's just a local update. I have been very vocal about where we stand and how grateful I am that Host Publications, our mission statement, which is to elevate marginalized voices, especially at a local level here in Texas, uh, but also people that we've met along the way and have really admired and respected. And our mission statement aligns with the values of the Black Lives Matter movement. There's some ideas that we will implement in the coming weeks and in the future of host publications. And that is to just be vocal. I mean, as women, we're raised to not have an opinion and not be assertive about what we believe in. And for me, raised with an immigrant mother who feared deportation, there is always this element of being good and polite. Mm -hmm. And that was also wrapped up in not being able to explore what some would call radical ideas. But now I'm like, oh, it's just the truth. It's the future. Yeah. And that brings us to our topic today. This week, we've been amplifying melanated voices on social media, um, really trying to keep white voices to a minimum to support the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest that's taking place. So for this podcast, we really wanted to take the opportunity to elevate a couple of melanated voices that have been important to us in this time. So that's what we're doing today, participating in what's going on in our current moment through the lens of science fiction, which I think it's pretty radical to be a woman writing science fiction. And we've both chosen authors who are women of color. I think it's more relevant now than ever. Science fiction, of course, dealing with all the cool sci-fi technologies and all of the futuristic stuff also really deals heavily in social and environmental change and upheaval. And we're living in times of science fiction, it feels like to me, in more ways than one. We are living in the future and it is a dystopian future. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> feels like dark times. But... If we are trying to take this moment and be part of an uprising that is revolutionary, part of that is taking the terrible things that are happening and rewriting the way that they play out and literally creating a story out of them to try to harness that and change it into something that makes sense moving forward. Man, that's the hope. Yeah, it's beautifully said. So tell me about the book that you have been reading. So last summer, I picked up The Memory Police by Yoko Agawa, a Japanese woman writer. It was originally published in 1994, and last year it was published uh, with a translation by Steven Snyder. And it was a finalist on numerous high-profile lists. And so it had caught my eye. I'm really into science fiction, and at the time I was working on a script um, that was exploring memory and the past and how things on an island disappear. 
So it is definitely a kindred spirit to where this work comes from. So that was why I picked it up. And um, I didn't quite finish it the first time that I read it because it took some directions that I didn't love. But then when we decided that we wanted to talk about science fiction and I'm looking at contemporary times and how 2020 is its own science fiction novel, I picked this back up and finished it for the purpose of our discussion today. I, I was just going to say it's always hard when you're reading something because you you specifically chose it because you recognize a kinship with something you're working on as a writer. That is a tricky relationship. For me, it's usually poetry, but I am looking at it in a completely different way. And so I actually need it to be more functional for me, I think, rather than just getting to sit back and enjoy it. Um, but, you know, we have to fuel the fire. Like we have to be expanding our influences. It's just a tricky relationship. I picked it up because I wanted to understand how we portray characters who are living in a society that is removing things, taking things from mm -hmm. you. Um, and I wanted to see how other authors might depict that in a way that is believable, especially in film. It becomes very outlandish very quickly. And yeah. I wanted to see how someone else built a world around that. And just to compare where I was failing, which Claire, you have read the script. It is. It's great. <laughs> it's a, it's a big big script. Yeah. And I didn't quite get what I wanted out of this, but then revisiting it, I definitely see its merits. Um, but let me tell you what it's about. So The Memory Police is a novel and it tells the story of a dystopian world in which objects disappear from memory. And as they disappear from the memory, they also disappear from the physical world. So let's say that today my memory forgets roses. What happens next is that the people in this community destroy all of their roses. And so within a few days, not only has the mind forgotten the rose, anything that the rose has meant to the human mind, you no longer feel or remember anything for. So once the memory of something disappears, it's not just the thing also disappears, but that people actually destroy it? Yes, they get rid of it. And that brings us to... The memory police and the memory police enforce the getting rid of things. And they also enforce taking care of or getting rid of people who don't have the ability to forget. Oh. And so people in the novel that don't seem to forget begin to disappear. They get pulled away. Um, they're summoned. And then you have these characters that need to be hidden until something happens to them. It's basically saying that this society prioritizes people who know less. The more you know slash remember, more of a target you are, mm -hmm. or the less valuable you are to this society. Exactly. Hmm. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and <laughs> too familiar. Something that was interesting to me was that there is a character that asks like, but how could you just not pretend not to know? Mm -hmm. um, and then that really kind of unravels this idea of like, you can't hide what you know, because we are constantly influenced by what our minds are thinking and how we experience the world. So if you still are overwhelmed with emotion at the sight of a rose or have a, the memory of a rose then that is going to influence you. <laughs> it's also it also seems related to the idea that I'm assuming is maybe part of this, which is that 
your mind is kind of creating reality. Something that um, that the protagonist asks frequently is because every every other day something disappears and something that they ask is what happens when there's nothing left. And I feel like that question is at the core of the yeah. spirit of the book. Is that the goal? Is that what the memory police want for there to be nothing left? That's what I struggled with this book because the antagonist is clearly the entity that is the memory police, but it's never clear how it is enforced, um, what they want. You never have a face that you can put to this regime, which, you know, is a little bit hard for me to, to like grapple with because I had those questions. That leaves it so much more open-ended than it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. If you were just like, oh, it's a fascist regime and so-and-so is at the head of it. That would be more typical of the genre. And it would also provide easier answers and I, I totally understand how frustrating it can be when like a book doesn't give you certain answers and that's not always a good thing. But it's interesting for a sci-fi novel because they usually are pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Like they want you to know who the bad guy is. <laughs> very clear. <laughs> and what their motive is. Um, but there is definitely some very powerful depictions of what life can look like for us and has looked like for the past few months. Um, we do explore a character that is hidden and like a lot of science fiction, there's climate change is a huge element, which with our climate comes how we nourish ourselves and how we clothe ourselves. There's a disappearance of maps um, and the people on this island could not fathom how to get away. It's interesting, but, but yeah, there's the parallel of like, they come into people's homes, destroy everything to get rid of evidence of what everybody should have forgotten that is akin to the ice raids. Um, it's not like it's something that we haven't seen before, but also something that we're seeing right now. And this was written in 1994. 1994. Um, originally published in 1994. That impresses me that it, it holds up. There are those rare books that are famous because they are predictive or prophetic and are able to somehow accurately see what the future will will look like. And I'm sure a lot of that is just a reflection of what was already happening at that time. I'm interested. I'm going to I'm going to check her out. I always want to read more women in sci-fi. That is I say that I'm a person who likes science fiction and really what I mean, because I have tried with some of the classic dudes and maybe there's something in there that I would enjoy, but I have waded through too much stuff that I, you know, I like one female character speaks and I'm a me it's like page five and I'm like, oh, I'm out. I can't read this. It's beyond refreshing to read a science fiction author who is a woman. It's a completely different genre almost. And there are, you know, there's a few big names out there and, and I'm going to talk about Octavia Butler and she's certainly one of them, but there are more and more women science fiction writers out there now than ever before. So if you're into the genre, I think it's important to specifically seek out women's voices because it is a completely different experience. I want to add to that because I felt deterred by two things regarding science fiction, which was it felt very masculine. It felt like all of the voices that had dominated the science fiction genre was primarily men and white men. 
And the book covers are so ugly (laughs) that I didn't want to look at them, which sounds so dumb, but it's okay. So here's my confession which is that I love cheap paperback (laughs) sci-fi book covers from the 80s. Not all of them, because many of them do look like romance novels, but with like a dragon in the background or something. I sift through them at the used bookstores and I love to find like certain really weird ones. I like the kind of garish corniness of them, but overall to like sift through that section of the bookstore is horrifying. (laughs) You talk about the women characters speaking, The way they're depicted on the covers, it's beyond embarrassing for our species. My God. But I want to say, like three or four years ago, I started writing scripts that I planned on making. And what surprised me was that I had a lot of science fiction and surrealist elements. And so then I decided to begin to seek out women science fiction writers. And my instructor at the time was all about it. She was a woman of color as well. And she said to me that science fiction lends itself to minority voices, Mm. to marginalized voices. And that completely changed my approach to science fiction and what I sought out from it. That's amazing. It reminded me of the last line in the notes section, which is actually a poem in Monica's chapbook, Autobiography of a Semi-Romantic Anarchist, which is a poetry chapbook. The line about queer futurity, the idea of queer futurity as something that is basically in the realm of science fiction because of how different it is from our reality. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Here, I'll get the line. So the line is, but I already told you, queer futurity is the best bomb shelter we could ever build. (sighs) The idea of that futurity not just being like, oh, this alternate reality that we're going to create for ourselves someday and like envisioning a better future and that kind of tenuous connection to sci-fi, but actually it's a bomb shelter. It's it's a necessity. It's it's a a life-saving act of being able to imagine these alternative realities. It's part of what's happening with our world right now to build a new future is um, what could literally save us. Good job, Monica. Hi, Monica. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad we can't plug that book since it's sold out. Yeah, but it will be available for digital download at the end of the summer. Oh, hell yeah. I'm so into the idea of this novel more than I was when I read a synopsis of it. So thank you. Do you want to read a little bit from it? I should. Um, So I'll read you all just the very beginning because I am impressed how the first chapter really begins to paint a picture of this world. Here it goes. Chapter one. I sometimes wonder what was disappeared first among all the things that have vanished from the island. Long ago, before you were born, there were many more things here, my mother used to tell me when I was still a child. Transparent things, fragrant things, fluttery ones, bright ones, wonderful things you can't possibly imagine. It's a shame that the people who live here haven't been able to hold such marvelous things in their hearts and minds. But that's just the way it is on this island. Things go on disappearing, one by one. It won't be long now, she added. You'll see for yourself. Something will disappear from your life. No, don't worry. It doesn't hurt. And you won't even be particularly sad. One morning, you'll simply wake up 
and it'll be over. Before you even realized, lying still, eyes closed, ears pricked, trying to sense the flow of the morning air, you'll feel that something has changed from the night before, and you'll know that you've lost something, that something has been disappeared from the island. Beautiful. I'm going to check her out. Uh, so Octavia Butler is someone that I think has had a huge resurgence. She's been a popular sci-fi writer for a long time now, but her books have been republished by these small presses and they look so cool. They don't have those cheesy sci-fi covers anymore. Um, the collection of short stories that she wrote titled Blood Child put out by Seven Stories Press has a cool cover. She's definitely always been valued, which is incredible uh, as a woman of color writing in science fiction. Um, but even though she's well known, she has a really interesting story. And I wanted to tell a little bit about her um, before I talk about the work. She was born in Pasadena, California in 1947. And Though she is no longer with us, she passed away in 2006. I think she's a really important Black writer to be talking about right now because her books often deal with major social change that leads to total upheaval. Um, if you're looking for some reading that is kind of a parallel universe, she's a, she's a great person to turn to. The Houston Post ranked her among the best science fiction writers blessed with a mind capable of conceiving complicated futuristic situations that shed considerable light on current affairs. So they put it better than I could. Um, but she's so cool because she started reading science fiction at a young age. Um, she was kind of an awkward, slightly antisocial child who Definitely didn't feel like she really ever fit in. I can really relate to one part of her story, which is that she was really tall. And I know <laughs> that she talked about that um, as being a factor in her kind of bookishness as a kid, um, just feeling a little bit out of place all the time. But yeah, I mean, she was a kid growing up in the 50s and early 60s, reading science fiction as a young black girl. And truly, I think the biggest reason why she was encouraged and able to not only read science fiction, but become a science fiction writer was her mother. Butler herself credits the struggles of her working class mother as one of the most important influences on her writing. There's a story about how her mother would pay more than a month's rent to have an agent review her daughter's work. And she also gave Octavia all the money she had been saving for her own dental work to pay for a scholarship so she could attend the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop. And that is where Octavia Butler sold her first two stories. So shout out to all the single mothers out there who are helping their daughters become writers. Oh my God, that's beautiful. Tears. <laughs> she begged her mom for a typewriter when she was 10 years old. She wanted to write stories because she was quickly disenchanted with the science fiction she was reading because it's representation of black characters, the lack of female protagonists, the way it portrayed class. Even as a small child, she was like, there's some problems and I could do better, which yes. I just like love the chutzpah. And she got a typewriter when she was 10 years old and started writing stories. This is just a cute side note. One of her first stories was titled Flash Silver Star and it's a young girl who's picked up by a UFO from Mars and taken on a tour of the solar system. Aww. I want to read that story. I wish I wish it was still out there somewhere. Um, if you didn't love her work already, I think that just a little bit of her bio 
it's an incredible mind to have the privilege to get to engage with as a reader. So she received a ton of awards, too many to list on this podcast. But one really cool thing that Butler received was the MacArthur Fellowship. And she was actually the first science fiction writer to ever receive that. So not even a black woman science fiction writer, but just any sci-fi writer to receive a MacArthur Fellowship, kind of legitimizing the genre in a way. So she's she's like, you, you know, maybe the first name that comes to mind when people say sci-fi is Isaac Asimov or Philip K. Dick. But honestly, like Octavia Butler, she's kind of the backbone of sci-fi in my mind. Pioneer. Yes. So the books of hers that I loved the most are the Exogenesis trilogy, which starts with a book titled Dawn. And I just want to say right now that (laughs) the cover (laughs) is ugly. Not only that, it's reprehensible because this particular publication... Drop a name, Claire. Popular Library, an imprint of Warner Books. Um, 1987, guys. Not that long ago. There's a white person on the cover. It is clearly supposed to be the protagonist. The protagonist is black. It's kind of an important part of the book. So that's absolutely reprehensible. Um, They corrected themselves. The next two in the series, their protagonists have depicted... As melanated folks. Anyway. Wow, we're going to fight some people today, y'all. It's not Octavia Butler's fault. Let's just say that. She wrote some beautiful books. Um, This trilogy is really cool. It's about this group of aliens who don't really have a home planet. They wander the universe looking for other species to intermix with and basically create new species. And so it's a really bizarre taboo premise. But yeah, it leads to some really interesting conversations in a lot of her work. The idea of the alien is another way that she is sort of critiquing our hierarchies in our in our culture, our racial hierarchies and otherness. And also why you want to read these is because they are about to make a series based on the first book. And really? I can not wait. So it's actually Amazon Studios and Macro Television Studios have partnered with Ava DuVernay. Yes. Is that how you say her name? Oh my God. They've partnered with Ava DuVernay's Array Filmworks to make a series adaptation of Dawn. So it's the first time Octavia Butler's work will have been translated to the screen. And it's going to be directed by Victoria Mahoney. Y'all, I'm pumped. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, Amazon is disgusting and... But Victoria Mahoney is a really cool director. She worked on The Rise of Skywalker and helped kind of fix a little bit of the Star Wars franchise's issues with, you know, underrepresentation. The series examines the theme of alienation by creating situations in which humans are forced to coexist with other species to survive, um, which definitely is a theme with Octavia Butler, she likes this kind of like genetically altered hybrid individual idea. Uh, I don't think there's that easy of a parallel between that and like issues of race in our society, but there's something there, but it's not an easy parallel. I'll say that. But yeah, the protagonist is Lilith Ayapo, and she finds herself in a spaceship after surviving the nuclear apocalypse. Hi. Close to Um, home. She is saved by the Onkali aliens. 
along with other human survivors, and they are in captivity. And so they are forced to combine their DNA with that of the Onkali. The human race to survive has to basically blend with another species. Wow. Mm-hmm. She does a lot with the survivor as the hero. I love that. I love that for science fiction. I love that for women written sci-fi. And one of the stories in Blood Childs that I wanted to read you a little bit of today is called Speech Sounds. And I just rediscovered this story. But in Speech Sounds, the premise is that there is a virus that has affected all of humankind and it affects different parts of the brain. The speech center of the brain is the main part. And so most people lose the ability to speak. And also most people have lost their ability to read and write. So language is just, language and communication are no longer really part of human society. And it's chaos and there's a lot of death as well. So the female protagonist, her name is Rai, and she gets on a bus because she's decided she needs to leave her home where she's been sheltered and in survival mode. Also, hi. <laughs> I'm, I'm like rubbing my hands together. I'm so excited. <laughs> She's been sheltered, surviving on her little garden. Her children and her husband died. And I think she knows that she has a brother and some nephews in another town over. She doesn't have a vehicle. So she somehow finds this person who's operating a bus and she gets on the bus. But there's other people on there and it turns into a situation where there's these guys who are getting into a fight and nobody can talk. So they're just grunting at each other and who knows what's happening. And so it becomes this violent situation and she has to get off the bus. Through that whole scenario, she meets up with this guy who she, in her mind, names Obsidian. He helps her escape and she comes to kind of trust him and they sort of spend the day together. And instead of trying to find her family, who she's pretty sure are dead, and even if they're not, they're probably aggressive because of the way the virus affects most men, she finds a safe man that she really likes. And so they make some kind of wordless pact to stay together. And of course, in the next scene, he sees a domestic dispute between a man and a woman. And he tries to help and he gets shot. So it's really sad. And in the end... There's these two kids, the man and woman who were fighting and the man who shot Obsidian. Um, their kids are left. And so Rai, the end, is left now with like a whole new life's mission. And I really just, the reason I'm telling you the whole synopsis is because I really just wanted to read the last page. So you read the first page. I'm going to read the last page. Sorry about the spoilers. Um, I definitely think you're going to want to read this story, though, after hearing the way it ends. So here's Rai. She's just lost someone that she honestly just met, but had decided to sort of reframe her entire life around. So, Rai glanced at the dead murderer. To her shame, she thought she could understand some of the passions that must have driven him, whomever he was. Anger, frustration, hopelessness, insane jealousy. How many more of him were there? People willing to destroy what they could not have. Obsidian had been her protector, had chosen that role for who knew what reason. Perhaps putting on an obsolete uniform and patrolling the empty streets had been what he did instead of putting a gun into his mouth. And now that there was something worth protecting, he was gone. She had been a teacher, a good one. She had been a protector too, though only of herself. She had kept herself alive when she had no reason to live. 
If the illness let these children alone, she could keep them alive. Somehow, she lifted the dead woman into her arms and placed her on the backseat of the car. The children began to cry, but she knelt on the broken pavement and whispered to them, fearful of frightening them with the harshness of her long, unused voice. It's all right, she told them. You're going with us, too. Come on. She lifted them both, one in each arm. They were so light. Had they been getting enough to eat? The boy covered her mouth with his hand, but she moved her face away. It's all right for me to talk, she told him. As long as no one's around, it's all right. She put the boy down on the front seat of the car, and he moved over without being told to to make room for the girl. When they were both in the car, Rye leaned against the window, looking at them, seeing that they were less afraid now, that they watched her with at least as much curiosity as fear. I'm Valerie Rye, she said, savoring the words. It's all right for you to talk to me. I forgot to mention that though most people have lost speech, Rye secretly still has hers and has to hide that fact to protect herself because people are aggressive and the wordless folks would lash out at her if they knew she could still talk. And so when she finds the children, she discovers that they can also speak still. That is beautiful. I remember reading Blood Child a couple of years ago on a plane. It is an excellent collection of stories. When I read that page, something about it really stood out to me in terms of the framework I have for it now, as opposed to when I first read it. And just that last line, it's okay for you to talk to me, is so powerful. Beautiful. There's also a kinship to the memory police um, in that... There are people hiding their ability to remember. Um, yeah. And how hard it is to be able to hide that. Yeah. And then finding solidarity among other people who share that ability with you. Octavia Butler is ruthless. She creates protagonists. And she says in interviews, I write myself in. And I think she did that as a kind of accountability measure. But though you see her in some of her protagonists... She's ruthless with them. I mean, they don't get happy endings. They don't get answers or solace. And, you know, I really respect that. She doesn't try to tie a nice bow around what has happened so that it can make sense and be necessarily a learning lesson for anyone. It's just it's just a good story and it's reflective of our lives. Wow. Yeah. I'm very excited to, to pick up the trilogy, but I'm also excited to see how someone as brilliant as Octavia Butler and her work are translated to the screen. We don't typically get work and voices like this on the mainstream, especially if they don't get to have endings that are tied in bows. And Yeah, I can't wait. I think it's going to be incredible. Yeah. I wanted to say that one of the ways that we can support the Black Lives Matter manifesto, like one of the ways we can live that is by supporting, especially as, as people in publishing, supporting Black artists and writers. And so since Octavia Butler is no longer with us, I wanted to offer a list of other Black women who are writing science fiction now, who you can support by reading. And also, I have heard such great things about some of these books. I really can't wait to get my hands on them. N.K. Jemison's trilogy, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. That's something I've had my eye on for a while, actually. Uh, it comes highly recommended. So please check out N.K. Jemison, 
There's uh, Nettie Okarafer. Her novel is titled Who Fears Death? Then there's Tanana Reeve Du. Her novel is My Soul to Keep. There's also Nalo Hopkinson. Her novel Brown Girl in the Ring. Hopkinson was also an editor for the anthology titled So Long Been Dreaming, Postcolonial Science Fiction Fantasy. That sounds like something that should be required reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and these writers have other books. These are just the ones that I've done a little research on that look really cool and I am recommending. Um, but definitely check out their other work as well. Listeners, if you have any other book recommendations, books by any writers of color in the science fiction world that you think we should be reading, then please hit us up on Instagram at Host Publications. We'll be posting about the podcast there. We want to know what we should be reading right now to help broaden our horizons and educate ourselves. We just want we just want your book recommendations. Yeah, we've got piles a mile high, but we're getting through them. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Claire, this has been such a nourishing conversation and I agree. It's fun talking to you. Let's do it again sometime. <laughs> Next Friday. <laughs> From all of us at Host Publications, thanks for listening. If you're interested in reading the books we discussed today, Check your local bookstore for The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, as well as the Xenogenesis Trilogy and short story collection Blood Child by Octavia Butler. For more reading recommendations, check out the reading lists on our blog, specially curated by Monica Teresa Ortiz at hostpublications.com, and follow us on Instagram at hostpublications. Stay tuned for the next conversation. <laughs>